Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So can I be really frank with you? This next interview I was nervous for. Yeah, doesn't happen all the time. I usually am more excited. But Dr. Fernando Castrillon is an analyst. He's a, a personal and supervising psychoanalyst. Moreover, he's a Lacanian analyst. And he's the, he's the um, editor-in-chief of the European Journal of Psychoanalysis. He's also um, a member of the Instituto Elvio Fascinelli, the Institute of Advanced Studies in Psychoanalysis based in Rome, Italy. And here's the scoop. I have had my run-ins with psychoanalysts, um, and he addresses it right off the bat. Um, you know, he said, look, when I first entered graduate school to become a therapist, I thought psychoanalysis was misogynistic and racist and yada, yada, yada. Here he is, this South American, Spanish-speaking man who has be- has written tomes of works, of literary works on psychoanalysis. He's a faculty of the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California, PINK as we call it in San Francisco. He's a psychologist. He's a professor. Uh, How I really learned about him is he does this cool thing where he does psychoanalysis um, at something called the CIS Clinic Without Walls. It's an innovative psychotherapy clinic serving mostly poor and immigrant communities. A lot of folks say, you can't do psychoanalysis with people that are poor immigrants. It's sort of for this elite class. He says, no, that's not true. Um, this conversation was so fun. It's, t- it's intense. It's deep. It's deep stuff. Um, but I tell you, it's soulful, right? Because I feel like what analysts are doing is, you know, so often we talk about mental health. We're kind of riding the, the surface of things. Okay, And what I find, whether you're a Jungian analyst, a Lacanian analyst, or a Freudian analyst, what these folks do, from my opinion, is they are getting to soul-level work. And it's not always cute. It's definitely not the easiest work, and it's not focused on symptoms reduction. The cool thing is he's got a couple, he's already the author of two books and articles in Spanish and English, but he's got a really cool multi-volume work coming out on psychoanalysis, The Discourse of Capitalism and the California Dream. So, oh, this was so fun to talk to him. And he's so accessible. He's so normal. We had so much fun. So I think he's going to make some really intense topics feel really accessible. And I can't wait for you to meet Dr. Fernando Castrion editor-in-chief, personal and supervising psychoanalyst. Dr. Fernando Castrione, I'm pretty sure that I passed you in the hallways of CIS while I was in graduate school there. I think it's like close to 20 years now. But you and I have a very different 
field of study. I mean, you're doing groovy stuff in the analytic world, not only the editor of the European Journal of Psychoanalysis, but you did this thing called Clinic Without Walls, which is what first turned me on to you. Tell us a little bit about your history and your thinking outside the box style, if you will. Um, well, uh, you know, so I'll just go straight with the first thing that comes into my mind as if this were a session, right? Instead of coming up with a more perhaps Ooh, free uh, associate with me. Yeah. Right. Instead of a more polished sort of like package. So, um, I actually came into the field heavily anti-psychoanalytic. So Ooh, I like um, you even more now. So I was, I had, uh, I was in graduate school getting my PhD in sociology, particularly in social theory um, and uh, critical theory over at uh, University of California, Davis. And um, I was on editorial board of Theory and Society. And this is back in the 90s. So Foucault was, you know, all the rage. And because of Foucault, I got into Deleuze and Gattari. And Anti-Oedipus was an incredibly important uh, text for me. It, it continues to be so. It's kind of the shadow text that haunts my analytic sort of forays. Um, and uh, I just, from their work and also because of Foucault and, you know, many other people, Artie Lang and some of these other sort of like anti-psychiatry cats, I had gotten a very particular view of psychoanalysis as being, of course, patriarchal, elitist, um, misogynistic, classist, racist, uh, and you can add, you know, various other um, terms there, um, certainly transphobic. Um, all these were the kind of terms that were floating in my head. And um, the long and short of it is that after some particular engagements with certain psychoanalysts, I came to realize that that way of viewing it was certainly in line with a lot of, although not all of, but a lot of what passes or has passed for psychoanalysis in the United States, which is, of course, ego psychology. Um, but then I started, you know, after a while, I realized that, all right, be that as it may, I was still very interested in schizoanalysis which is what Deleuze and Gattari speak of in their, in their work. But whenever I would read Anti-Oedipus, or, or better said, attempt to decipher whatever it is that we were trying to say, I realized that they were continuously having a conversation with two entities, Freud and Lacan. And so I realized, look, if I'm going to get anywhere with the schizoanalysis stuff, it's important for me to have some sort of encounter with the work of Lacan and Freud. Um, I entered psychoanalysis with a Lacanian analyst as a way of doing that. And then, lo and behold, I was transformed by the experience. And, you know, years later, <laughs> yeah, now, now I'm an analyst and been practicing as an analyst for a decade now. Um, and, uh, yeah, and... I, this is what I write in. This is, yeah, I'm heavily invested in this field in many ways. Um, but there were very particular things about the work of Lacan that really uh, spoke to me and continue to speak to me to this day. Um, so that's how I entered into all this. But it's interesting you bring up CIS because 
I, you know, I, I, I'm a faculty member there. I've been a faculty member at CIS now for like 15 or 16 years. And so I think that experience of being at the California Institute of Integral Studies, in many ways, the sort of premier, quote, alternative school in California for anything having to do with spirituality and, you know, psychotherapy. Um, and at the same time, ha- you know, inhabiting the world of, you know, the Lacanian field, it's like, how, how do those two work together? Well, I think that's so much of what I've been working through and working with over the last decade and a half. Um, that's one way of perhaps glimpsing into or looking into, peering into what it is that I'm involved in. So I want to back up for a second because I think the listeners aren't going to be as geeky as I am. Can you give an overview? This is so hard, but can you give an overview of how psychoanalysis might be different than the kind of therapy that more and more people are getting where they're going in and uh, maybe getting some thought sort of management therapy or symptom management therapy or... uh, yeah, working on their family system. What, what's, how would you give the overview of psychoanalysis for folks listening? That, in many ways, goes straight to the heart of it. That, that's a good sign of a really awesome interviewer, I have to say, Tracy. <laughs> right from the beginning, you're asking the question that goes right to the heart of it, which is that that's exactly what my work revolves around. So I'm writing a multi-volume book. Right now, it's at three volumes. Um, and it's a juxtaposition of two things, which is here you have psychoanalysis, which is a product of what some would refer to as the dark enlightenment, the latter part of enlightenment thinking that holds open certain particular aspects of modernity and brings them front and center. How is it that that set of practices and 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 thought how does all that fit into a place like california um so this is the volume psychoanalysis discourse of capitalism and the california dream that i saw on your website exactly right so right so that it because so let me let me actually bring of all people beyond wilford beyond into this so uh, as you may well know beyond came to spend the last 10 years of his life in los angeles um, and I mean, he was incredibly famous in the UK, comes out to California, comes out to LA, starts practicing and is actually having a tough time at it beyond of all people. Like in his day, one of the sort of like heavyweights of the field comes out to LA and certainly has analysis, but most of them are people in formation. They're analysts in training. Um, but he's not getting a lot of people outside of that. Right. Uh, and I say this because I've talked. I've spoken with several people who were in analysis with Beyond. And one of the things that Beyond said when he got here, after he was here for some while and kind of had a had a taste for what the scene was like, said, how is anybody going to come to psychoanalysis when there is so much else on offer? Yoga, spiritual traditions of different types, right? All kinds of different psychotherapies. A lot of them are kind of like thought management, CBT-ish kind of things. Or the sort of precursors to all that. We're talking the 70s here. And his question was, well, why 
why would anybody come to psychoanalysis, right? That's essentially my question. Why would anybody come to psychoanalysis in general, nowadays especially, but most certainly, and more importantly for me, why in California? And the reason I single out California is because the utopian impulse in California is extremely strong and shows up all over the place, right? There is a certain set of conditions and and material sort of arrangements that allow for a certain kind of freedom of thought up to a point, expansiveness, but certainly a utopian kind of thinking that leads to a lot of cutting edge kind of things. Okay, so obviously we have Silicon Valley. Um, in, in San Francisco, we have Silicon Alley. Um, we have, you know, all the tech innovations that are constantly occurring here. You have Hollywood. Um, you have many cutting edge kind of things that are consistently an outgrowth of the kind of environment that we have here. So how does that set, uh, how, that particular arrangement, right? which is premised on the California dream, which I'll get to in just a second. How does that align with something like psychoanalysis of the kind that I inhabit, which is premised on this whole idea of the lack? So, so the lack as something actually not there, but yet generative of something if one is able to sit with it. The big problem in in sort of utopian thinking is that any sort of omission or lack is understood to be somehow nullifying um, of subjectivity, actually. So if you're operating in a way in which what you're constantly attending to is the lack, how does that align with anything in California? But yet it happens. My practice is full, thankfully, and it's been like that for years. How is it that that's the case? Why is it that people would come to psychoanalysis in California? And that's essentially the question I'm asking. Because the California dream that we've heard about in so many different ways, I actually theorize as being nothing other than the discourse of capitalism in the way that Lacan spoke about it, right? So Lacan had four discourses or four ways of conceiving the social bond, four ways of understanding the nexus between subjectivity and the social field. Right. And so you have the discourse of the master, the discourse of the university, the discourse of the hysteric. And then you have, of course, the discourse of psychoanalysis. He had a fifth quasi discourse, which he called the discourse of capitalism. That discourse of capitalism is what exists here and has always existed here since Europeans came to California. So I won't go into all of it because it's extremely complex. But if you look at the temporality of how discourses got set up, California was not somehow laden with a discourse of the master it had to get rid of in order to institute a discourse of capitalism, unlike the East Coast of the U.S. or most certainly Europe or South America, for example, which is where my origins are. There you have discourses of the master that you had to essentially get rid of or somehow put to the side to be able to then bring forth a discourse of capitalism that people could then start revolving in. In California, you have the beginning of statehood at the same time that markets are already taking place. There is no discourse of the master. And so you have the discourse of capitalism 
commensurate with the beginnings of California as we understand California to be. That's a California dream. So I want to bring this into story so that these terms come alive for people and they can feel it as you're talking about it. So here I am. I actually am a born and raised Californian, actually. Um, which means oh, that, that I don't have one the, of the few, one of the few. <laughs> I had a stint. I'm currently living in Germany and I had a stint living in Oregon for a few years, but born and raised Californian. So mm-hmm. I'm suffering from anxiety and I come in to see you and I'm thinking the reason why I want to go in and see Dr. Castrione is because I am feeling anxious all the time. I feel like um, I'm burnt out. I'm working too many hours. How might I be benefiting or even holding this idea of what you and I are doing together as your analyzand patient. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you call us. Call me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, going back to to the question you had asked before, which I don't think I did a very good job of answering, which is how does, let's say, the approach that I come out of, right, the lineage that I come out of, different than what is usually on offer here. So the way somebody would understand anxiety is, well, okay, there's something awry. Either there is a set of somehow mistaken thoughts that need to be fixed, hence CBT, or if it's more on a humanistic side, is the sense that there is something missing and that if you can come to somehow fill in that missing piece that you'll be fine, right? So if you're made integral, if somehow you uh, can achieve some sort of point of holistic wellness, that you'll be fine. So many of the therapies, for example, that are propagated at a place like CIS are, is premised on this idea, right? You go to the therapist to actually get the thing that you don't have. You know, Alan Watts, one of the, the founders of CIS, called this the game of Western psychotherapy. It's a game. So, but what do you do in a game? It, it's a way of people of bringing people in, but once they're in, you do something different, right? And I think that's what Lacanians endeavor to do, um, which is sure, that might be the premise that brings somebody in, but when somebody gets in, what you look at is what they sense is missing and then actually go from there and see it as something generative as opposed to something that must be somehow corrected or filled in. That there's something about what is missing that speaks something in my job, in my position as analyst, which I'm placed there by the person speaking, the person who's asking to come into the work. My job then is to sit there and listen to what might arise from this place of lack, as opposed to somehow nullifying it by trying to fill it in with something, right? So yep. implicit, just real quick. So implicit in that is that there, that I mean, and this is key, is that runs directly counter to the discourse of capitalism. And that's what I want to emphasize, because that's key. Unless you get that, you can't get exactly what you cannot get what it is that a Lacanian would be doing. Because you're not giving the client something in return for their fee. You're not filling up the empty self with something that's going to make them feel better. You're actually sort of, as as I'm hearing it and sort of combining my very, you know, kindergarten level understanding of Lacan, you're actually 
helping this person make more accurate sense of, of their life and seeing it more clearly than necessarily making them feel better. It's for them to speak something that they didn't know they even had within them by virtue of simply sitting with what they bring in as opposed to trying to fix it. Yep. So play with me for a second here. <laughs> I invite yeah. you invite you to analyze what I'm going to say. Okay. Well, first I'll ask you this kind of weird question. I started sitting on a sidewalk six years ago because of a dream. Okay. Also because mm-hmm. I didn't particularly like the Bay Area. I, I, I'm allergic to dogma, religious dogma, psychological dogma, political dogma, monetary dogma. It gives me the creeps. And so it doesn't matter where it comes from and how well-intentioned. I just want to go sit on the sidewalk and listen to the people and find out what actual people have to say rather than hearing it through some kind of interlocutor, right? And so Love it. I started to- Love s- it. Yeah. So I decided I wanted to sit on the sidewalk. Now, you know, when we've had different branding and social media people, they twist it around. But at, at the truth and the heart of it, that's what this was about for me. And- What do you think Lacan would say about this? Because I think sidewalk talk is a little hopeful, much more hopeful than Lacan. I, you know, we have this huge loneliness epidemic. Uh, I'm curious what he'd say about sidewalk talk and what he'd say about this loneliness epidemic. So I'll leave it there. It's a big question. Okay, I'll I'll play with you and I won't. (laughs) Let me explain why. Yes, sir. (laughs) All right, okay. The reason for it is, is that I... I don't know what Lacan would say. And also, I'm very reticent to go um, to, to make predictions or to, to think through what he would have said about something. What I can say is this. My sensibilities as somebody who did their formation as a Lacanian analyst and my reading of Lacan and Freud would lead me to articulate certain answers to what you're saying. So in terms of the the work of listening to folks on the sidewalk i i ha- i have to say i absolutely love that and the reason for it is that there's nothing that will do in or make an analysis or an encounter fall apart more than one person thinking that by having a certain set of theoretical knowledge, they know more than the other. It makes you close your ears. Instead, if you, if you go into it not knowing, because you don't know, not, not knowing like I'm supposed to go in there not knowing, but behind it all, I really think I do know. <laughs> no, not that crap. Not the, the pretend not knowing, but the real not knowing. <laughs> Yeah, the despairing, like, I I really have no clue what the hell is going on, not knowing. The humility of occupying, I don't know, I'm thinking through in Spanish right now, but the sort of very humble place of not knowing, it opens up your ears, right? In other words, one creates a vacuum. Here I am citing Lacan. It creates a vacuum whose virtue it is to that it then opens up something in the person who's speaking 
and they cough up something new that they didn't know. It's a bit of a magic trick, but it's a magic trick that is the result not of an imposition, like some sort of imposition of a theoretical posturing that then leads to a product. That's the discourse of capitalism. Instead, it's a vacuum that's created by our own despairing not knowing that opens up something so that the other can speak something they didn't even know. But you got to sit in that place. And what I assume, this might be just my romantic vision of what's going on with the sidewalk you know, talk, is that the people who are sitting there setting up these chairs and just saying, hey, look, I'm here to listen, are in that place of that knowing. That would be my grand hope. Well, that's part of the training. I can't say that we get it right all the time. We definitely have some paternalism and saviorism going on in some respects, but most people know that our stat- our stance is really that we believe that compassion happens between equals and that we are in an utter- that we treat it as our practice. So it's not us going out and serving the community. I'm trying to just beat this drum. No, it's your practice to practice not knowing. Yeah. I remember when I was was first training as a psychotherapist and the truer words have never been spoken to me. They said, you will know that you are a decent therapist when you can not know what the hell is going on in the room and feel totally comfortable. (laughs) Right. That has actually been true for me. Or right, the the anguish of it, right? It's like, all right, this is I don't know what's going on, but hey, I'm I'm here, and I I'm, right. here I am, and then I'm here I am again, despite the anguish, despite the anxiety, here I am again, and I think that's that's vital. Look, I mean, I'm I'm the editor of like a major journal where tons of like you know really fancy people like publish. Okay, great, all that is well and good. Theory is important so as to be able to carve out our ears so we can hear better. But you got to leave theory at the door the moment you walk in and have an encounter with somebody. Otherwise, all you're doing is essentially trying to apply an ideology to a human. That's violence to me, in my understanding. That that's that's the squelching of somebody's subjectivity. That's some real violence that's going on there. Right. And so, and yeah, ha- most of our work lot. is listening. Oh, yeah. Right. And so, you know, what I'm most interested in, I have to say, even though, again, I swim in waters with people that are incredibly smart and verbose and can write amazing things and theoretical this and that. Yes, I exist in that world. It, and in many ways, the people I'm most interested in are the quiet ones who don't say much but have a real knack for sitting in that place of not knowing and continuing to sit in that place of not knowing. I see the effects of their work, right? And that's the part that I'm I'm astonished by. I have real sort of a kind of admiration for that. So, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. I think that's really powerful what you're saying. I you know, I know we have different lenses, but there's something that for me feels so out of balance about Western European culture in particular. There's this quality of output. So it's be a very CIS way to explain it, but outward energy. And we don't know how to actually receive people. 
or do that listening because everything that we've been taught has been about output, outreach, speaking, producing, doing. And it's like we don't we haven't even trained this receptivity and coming in. Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like it's a, a, an underdeveloped skill. And I'm not just talking about listening. I'm just talking about receptivity in general. Um, yeah. 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 Well, look, you know, so here's the thing, right? I mean, one of the reasons that I'm, um, you know, <laughs> I playfully said no to like, you know, what would Lacan say about this? Your question is that there were many different Lacans. Of course, it's like there's many different Tracys and many different versions of me, for example, right? That we're non-unified. That That's a basic precept of, of a Lacanian approach is that we're not unified. And we cannot be. And that if you aim at that, that's lunacy. It's a kind of delusion. It's a kind of madness, really. Okay. Having said that, um, one of the things that I see very few Lacanians actually speak about is what Lacan did towards the end of his life in terms of his encounter with the work of Lao Tzu. So the probably fictional author of um, the Tao Te Ching, and also the work of Chuangzu, right? So, quote, Taoists. And I say quote because they, they, they didn't consider themselves Taoists. They were just these people who had certain realizations and, and then were offering them and transmitting them. But yet Lacan, towards the end of his life, spent an enormous amount of time working with these texts um, and with one particular interlocutor in particular, I won't get into that whole history, but that's a very interesting history that's usually not highlighted by Lacanians. My question is why? The, the works of Lao Tzu and the work of Chuangzu in particular, and for me, the greatest philosopher of all time was Chuangzu, um, who was writing, you know, 250 years, you know, before Christ. Um, is is all about recept receptivity, right? That 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 capacity to somehow create an emptiness that then allows for something else to be born. Like a basic thing that comes out of the Tao Te Ching is that out of emptiness comes something. That that's the grand quote mystery of it all. Now, Lacan at one point does quote Chuangzu and the metaphor of the or the dream of the butterfly, and this is a famous one. Um, but there's also other areas where it's it's clear that Lacan was referencing Chuangzu without naming him in that moment, and Lacan did that all over the place with all kinds of people. But it's it's curious to me because that's what it's about, right? And for me, that approach is what matters so much in our work. Because when you do approach it in that way, people come alive, right? There's no shoulds or oughts or this should have been this way or that way. It simply is, this is what's going on now and we're riding this wave. That's what we're doing, right? You don't have to use fancy language to get there. And in fact, I think fancy language and fancy thinking oftentimes get in the way of a simple cutting that allows for that opening to actually occur. And that's what matters to me. That's what I find in my daily practice as an analyst. 
that makes the difference is my capacity to be open, not my capacity to think fancy thoughts. I got to say, the latter, the capacity to think fancy thoughts, usually gets in the way. And most of what we do is to get out of the way so something else can then happen. So I'm totally, there's something very soulful about this kind of work. It almost feels like reclaiming soul. That's very Jungian. But I, I remember this conversation that I had with a, a colleague of mine. He's a very seasoned CBT therapist. CBT, for folks that are listening, is cognitive behavioral therapy, where you go in and the premise is, is that it is the way that you're thinking that is creating your suffering. And you will get be given lots of thought experiments to change the way that you're thinking so that you can feel better. And he said to me, he goes, gosh, I just got a new patient who was in analysis and they can't function in their life. And I'm, all, I'm, I'm really struggling with something right now, to be frank. Um, so this isn't uh-huh. me indicting analysis. I'm a little angry at psychotherapy and I'm, I'm feeling very grateful to be talking to you and to be able to say this out loud. God, I feel emotional saying that. It feels really good to say. Um, go ahead. You can analyze. But I feel like psychotherapy has not become a tool for self-liberation. It's become a tool to help people adapt to the existing society that they live in. And so, therefore, psychotherapy is becoming a tool of the state to get people to function rather than to reclaim the essence of their their life and it pisses me off (laughs) absolutely oh yes agreed right most psychotherapy has functioned to you know make people into better cogs for the machine i mean that's been said many times but because it's been said many times does not detract from the the truth you know of it um i think that's most certainly the case um and i think a large part of psychotherapy is guilty as charged as certainly being part of that my then, experience of psychoanalysis just real quick is my experience of psychoanalysis has been that in its best moments it's incredibly subversive right um it's upsetting it it undercuts the very premises that we think keep everything afloat. I was just talking to somebody earlier today, a supervisee, in fact, right? And she does amazing work. And one of the things that we were talking about is the, so you know how kids have little floaties on their arms when they're learning to like swim in the pool? Yeah. And we all have floaties. Psychoanalysis at its best is constantly deflating those floaties (laughs) and saying, look, just just take a dive into the water. You've been told that if you fall into the water, you will die, literally. And by virtue of, of its approach, the best moments of psychoanalysis, because they're moments, Right. Allow somebody to look at the floaties and say, you know what? I thought I needed you. I don't need you. Floaties. I'm just going to I'm just going to let myself settle into this and see what happens. It's a risk. 
it most certainly is a risk. But here's the thing is to not do that is also a risk. But that risk we've learned socially to somehow hide from each other. So that's the social game is if we can like collude with each other in hiding the actual danger of continuing as we have and also the enormous cost that we were made to pay for continuing that way of being. And then we can all supposedly merrily go along and just, you know, continue to supposedly live our lives. That is a kind of collective madness. Psychoanalysis in its best moments subverts exactly that. Mm. So I know we have just a a bit of time here left. There's this one last big topic I want to tackle, which is the topic of loneliness, because I'm I'm even starting to, uh, you know, what I'm confronting in myself. So Sidewalk Talk was this experiment that was my little thing, and then press got wind of it. Then there was a video that went viral, and then it grew big, and then I felt the pressure to, like, respond to that demand to put something out there. And then I responded to the demand and then I got sucked into the capitalist tidal wave of, oh my God, I've got to build a website and now I've got to make money and make this thing go. And, and now I'm back to the, screw that. I just want to go back to it being the experiment again. So I've kind of gone through this whole cycle. And now I'm feeling the same way with how we're approaching loneliness as an epidemic, that it feels like it's becoming carried away by the capitalist wave. And we're throwing a bunch of, you know, apps and devices and conferences and ideas and yet it's still at the root of it it feels like something i'm so curious what analysis or psychoanalysis would think or say and i know there can't be one answer but what it might say about our society that seems to be experiencing collective loneliness and i have a sense jacques lacan would say something like well, because we are we we are alone and we die alone, so freaking grieve it and learn that that's reality. <laughs> but I'm curious what you would say. What is this thing about loneliness? Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree with Lacan on that, but that's not all of it. And what I'm saying with that is that yes, I mean, I think there is a real liberation of a certain kind to sit with the truth that we are alone, we're born alone, we die alone, right? Nobody's going to come and die for us. That, um, that you know, if I'm, if I'm deathly ill with something, there's not somebody who's going to come and say, hey, you know, don't worry about it. I'll take the hit on this one so you can continue living. No, I have to bear that. And I have to bear it alone. In the moment where I go, right, I might have loved ones around me, but they're not really with me. They're not with me in that experience. And that that's true, and I want to stay with that. And there's also the real kind of fracturing of community that we've had as a result of just the onslaught of the discourse of capitalism for decades or centuries, really, at this point. That the sort of high point of madness that we've gotten to with its really intense set of issues, including loneliness. So I, I agree with that. That is a real hallmark of our times is this intense loneliness is not something to just be swept under the carpet and, and to be said, Hey, look, 
you're going to die alone. You've been alone the whole time. You just get used to it. Quit your you know, complaining. You sit with it. No, it's not so easy because the social is in tatters at this point. And I think the loneliness we're speaking about has to do with that as well. So the other part of it is, and I think this is something that psychoanalysis can offer, is there's a real yearning for a certain kind of connection when you sit with the fact that you really are alone. It's, it's not a yearning for union, right? Which it would be more the neurotic variety, right? Like, okay, if only, <laughs> if only I could have the skills to be able to connect with other people, I'd be really one with them. No, I, I, I think that's delusional. However, when you sit with the fact that you really are alone and that you will die alone, there is a possibility that something opens up on your side that wants a connection with people of a certain kind. It does not negate that you will continue to be alone, but you can be with others in that place. There's a lot more I can say here, and it's very easy to take my words as saying something else. But I do not want to dismiss what I would term like others have. I don't want to dismiss a real epidemic of loneliness that we have now. And to use Lacan to somehow just somehow sanctify and rationalize something that is highly problematic and really afflicts people, like people that I know personally. Right. That's like a real thing. And I do not want to dismiss that as just, you know, just neurotic thinking. It's not just neurotic thinking. There's more to it than that. There's something kind of beautiful. I, I want to reflect back. I almost hear you saying that when you can tell yourself the truth about this piece of loneliness and then we can sit together and be in connection around that truth. That that perhaps, I mean, you didn't say this, um, but but that perhaps is a, another kind of connection that might not be as collusive with the with the with the phony baloney, because now we're we're really connecting on the on the real. Yeah, certainly. I think that's a way of saying it. I mean, the 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 final thing I'll say on this, just in the interest of time, is. If you're not looking at the social, so if, let's say myself, if I'm not looking at the social to grant me a place so I know where I stand, then I can take the social for what it is. I can actually sit with others for who they are in themselves, not what I make them out to be for me because of some sort of security concern, right? So I can take joy in what arises in the other person without constantly trying to make it into something that'll make me, quote, whole and complete. If I give up on that project, I can hold the other in their radical otherness and take joy in that. Mm. That detracts from loneliness. I can see the, the, the sort of the, the real taste, the real sort of flavor, the, the, the singularity that somebody else brings forward because I don't need to make it into anything else. But that means I have to do something on my side so I don't do that to them. I don't make 
what they're bringing forth into something other than what it is. I can allow it to just be what it is for them. Mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of way of relating. Totally. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It was funny. I had a call with a girlfriend just before we got on. I was pissed. I was angry. And she started to give me this whole reframe your thoughts and don't be angry. I said, actually, I just wanted to let you, I wanted you to let me just be angry. And she goes, oh, and then she goes, great. Shall we, shall I join you in an, in a pissy dance? I said, please join me in a pissy dance. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I love ah. that. Oh, I could talk to you forever. Um, Look, we have this ritual that we, um, I get out of the way as interlocutor here and, and, and invite you to speak to direct, directly to these folks that, that decide they want to take up listening as their own practice, if you will, and sit on sidewalks, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. What would you want to say to them as, as a parting wish or words of wisdom? Well, that's the biggest question you've asked me in this whole interview, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> the, re- the reason I'm saying that is, I mean, seriously, who am I to say anything like that to another human? What I can speak to is from my experience, which is the more that we can empty ourselves out, the more the other will come forward. The less we are reliant on finding our footing in the world by trying to make the other give us a place the more that the other will come through as something that is just them so it's in a sense i'm just rearticulating what i was just speaking to before about the loneliness piece but i think that's what quote amateurs or people who don't or are not fully trained in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis that's what they can bring in a way that few people do in the end the best psychoanalytic training is an unlearning <laughs> right it's like all that stuff yeah. you learn it's like get rid of that just yeah. sit and listen but it's a certain kind of listening and the yeah. listening is for something that has nothing to do with us you enter somebody else's world as best as you can mm-hmm. and that when you do that there is a magic that happens for sure yeah the radical otherness Oh, this was fantastic. For everyone that's been listening, you can look up Dr. Castrione in the show notes. You can follow him. You can maybe subscribe to the European Psychoanalytic Journal, um, but there'll be a bunch of information. Thank you so much for being here and for the work that you do. And it was so fun to finally talk to you live. I can't believe it. After all these years, it was great. Right. Thank you so much, Tracy. This has been a real joy. This has been the highlight of my day. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your questions and your ear. You're listening. Made a big difference. Thank you. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of